Yehuda Geber of Jewish History Soundbites. So before you, we slide into our regular intro and the uh, part two of the Great American Jewish Cities, Cleveland Part 2. Before that episode uh, begins in the regular way, just wanted to uh, add in a few comments I received um, over the last day um, uh, that are additions to uh, to the Cleveland episode, which... You know, we don't want to leave out any anything or anyone, any important stories. So before I get to that, I want to remind all of our listeners that we are no longer on SoundCloud. Um, we are now on Podbean, so please subscribe to the podcast on Podbean. You could, there's also a call-in number to hear all the Jewish History Soundbites episodes at 857-385-7268. Um, so just a few comments about the Cleveland episode, anything that was left out, and additions and other good stories. So here's a few of them. First of all, my co-author at Mishpacha magazine expressed his surprise that I did an episode about Cleveland. I didn't mention the prominent Rav there, Rabbi Nissen Abrin, who's a former rabbi in Malodafna in Yerushalayim. So he's mentioned as well. Um, of course, you know, can't speak about Cleveland without mentioning the prominent Cleveland Jewish community news outlet, the Cleveland Jewish Life at clevelandjewishlife.com. I forgot to mention that as well. We would never know any Jewish news in Cleveland without that. Um, another listener submitted that the Tel Yeshiva didn't just send Hanukkah candles, they sent Haroises before Pesach as well. But one of the great stories that a few listeners submitted was the story about Ramatul Katz, who caught a boy and tells, a student and tells in the early days, I think it was still the 1940s, who went to check uh, the Indians, the Cleveland Indians at that time, um, were playing in the World Series, and he went to check the scores by the gas station. It was either Shabbos or Yom Kippur. There's different versions of the story, apparently. And Ramatul Khad said, you went to check the World Series on Shabbos or Yom Kippur or whenever it was. They are not going to win this World Series and they won't win another World Series. And that's how it was. And that is the, is the, uh, the, uh, the gzera, the curse, whatever you want to call it, of Ramatul Katz. Another listener um, put in that Rabbi Dessler, the founder of the Hebrew Academy, I kept on referring to, to as Reb Nachum Velvel, his grandfather, Reb Nachum Velvel Ziv, the son of the altar of Kelm, who he's named for, was known as Reb Nachum Velvel. So I innocently, being that I'm always back in history, assumed that the Rabbi Dessler is also referred to as Reb Nachum Velvel, and, so, and this, uh, I was alerted that he's referred to as Reb Nachum Zev, not Reb Nachum Velvel, so that was uh, incorrect. Another prominent rabbi um, was, is Rabbi Garfunkel, who is another, brought another Tell's outgrowth to University Heights, the Stiebel, where he was the rabbi, and he just recently retired, so he's part of uh, Cleveland history. Also, uh, in um, another, and unfortunately, just tragically passed away, Reb Shmuel Berkowitz, who just recently passed away, was the uh, principal of Mostos, another uh, elementary school in Cleveland, and the rabbi in the Kahal Yerayim Shul, Reb Meisha David, excuse me, Reb Meisha Ruvain Barkin, uh, started the Vad Hakashras and the Chever Kadisha. He single-handedly rejuvenated the yeshiva when it was almost closed several years ago, so we want to remember these people who are part of the Cleveland story as well. And with that said, I hope you enjoy part two of Cleveland uh, Jewish History Soundbites, Great American Jewish Cities. 
Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare River. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut loose It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this is part two of in, of the, our in our great American Jewish history, uh, Jewish cities series. Excuse me, Jewish cities series of Cleveland. We're up to part two of Cleveland, and this episode has been generously sponsored Lezecher Nishmas Harav Yisrael Groomer Rav of Rav of Congregation Shemer Shabbos in Cleveland who was just recently Nifter, a giant of a man who made a tremendous impact on the Cleveland community. So where we were holding uh, at the end of part one of uh, the, the Jewish community, the history of the Jewish community in Cleveland, we were talking about Tells and the influence that it had on the educational life of Cleveland. Interesting offshoot of that was that Ramatul Katz, the uh, Rosh Hashiva, had a has has a son, Rabbi Yaakov Velvel Katz, who started today. We have many kailos because of the uh, legendary philanthropist who we'll get to. Also, Mendy Klein and many kailos in Cleveland. But the first kail in Cleveland was Rabbi Yaakov Velvel Katz's kail, and that is not part of Tells, but they keep the customs of Tells there. Now, you have to understand that Rabbi Mayor Blach and Ramatul Katz they started a new family after the war. Their families were wiped out. And when they passed away, their families were still young. So Baruch Saratskin or Matri Gifter, they became the Rashi Yeshiva. And their Belmeir Blach and uh, Ramatul Katz's children, who were young at the time, they, um, they, they, they grew up within that atmosphere. Now, the, um, interesting that Ramatul Katz eventually, even though they originally they got along with uh, Rabbi Israel, Porath, who I mentioned in part one, the rabbi of, the, of, of Cleveland at the time, he eventually was, he, he stopped being so impressed with him. He said he grew up in the old Yishev in Yerushalayim and he became so Zionist. He starts, he starts first, Ramatul Katz was an Agudist, he was prominent in the Agudist Yisrael. He said, he said, first he was a student of Rav Kook, and then later he becomes active in the Mizrahi, and then he gets even worse. He, spe- he spoke at, at functions which which was affiliated with conservative Judaism. And so at that point, Ramatul Katz stopped inviting him to the Tel's Yeshiva dinners because he spoke by the conservatives. So even though he was essentially the chief rabbi, but they broke ranks. Um, 
It's interesting that Rabbi Israel Porath, another personality who came to Cleveland during the 1950s, 40s, 50s, which we'll get to, was the Kaliver Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Taub, who's survivor of the Holocaust, Auschwitz, just passed away recently. So everyone remembers him in Yerushalayim, the ones who have a better memory remember him in Menebrak or even Rishon Letzion, but before that he was in Cleveland. He even had a cheder for a short period of time in Cleveland. And Rabbi Israel Porath uh, used to attend the functions of that cheder. And they asked him why, he said, because, because I'm part of the Mizrahi in modern orthodoxy. And Rabbi Taub, the Kaliver Rebbe, comes from Hungary, Hasidus, he's a different type of orthodoxy, different type brand of Yiddishkeit. But when, if his Yiddishkeit stays strong in Cleveland, and he's built up well, then he will keep all of us more orthodox, more religious, more close to Yiddishkeit. It keeps everyone in line. When you have all the different types and the strong Yiddishkeit as a backbone, then it keeps everyone else in line. That's what Rabbi Israel Porath said in support of, of Kaliv. Very interesting perspective. And uh, of course, one of the most important parts of Cleveland history is the founding of the Hebrew Academy, which is connected to Tels. Uh, Remnachem Velvel Dessler, the son, the only son, uh, not the only child, the only son of Rebellion Laser Dessler of Kelm, so Rabnachum Velvodesler is born in Kelm. I remember when, when he passed away, so there were signs in Yerushalayim. So someone was in the mirror then, and someone came in and said, Yehuda, did you see that sign? On the sign, it said, Yelid Kelm, born in Kelm. He said, I saw that sign. I, I don't know, I started shaking. I, this is someone who belongs to a different generation. He's Yelid Kelm. He was born in uh, in Kelm. Um, so, so the... He 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 comes from the Kelm aristocracy. You know his, his ancestors were the altar of Kelm, Rabbi Stroll Salanter, and uh, of course from Nachum Velvelziv, the the Rashiva in Kelm. And he had studied in Tells Yeshiva before the war. He learned in Vilkamir by Rabbi Rubin, and then he was also in Tells in Kelm. He used to go to visit his family there when his father lived in England. So he would stay by his his grandparents and his aunt and uncle and uh, his grandmother and his aunts and uncles in in, in Kelm. Um, so he literally, literally grew up in that milieu, and um, and follow, and he and he escaped. He escaped at the beginning of the war through Japan, and he made it to the United States. Um, and he receives a letter from his father after the war, and the letter said, "Why did we survive? It's to rebuild." And he took that as a mission to rebuild, and he spent his entire life involved first with Tel Yeshiva as a rebbe there, and then he founds the Hebrew Academy, which I'm going to get to. And, but to, just to explain, you know, give, give you a sense of how Rambam Velvel Dessler grew up, you know, he was with his grandmother, um, Rebetzin, uh, the Rebetzin of Rambam Velvel Ziv in Kelm. So they were walking through the muddy sidewalks of Kelm on wooden planks, so they shouldn't be in the mud. And it was on the street of the famous Talmud Torah of Kelm. And she said, she says to him, "Let's cross the street because if we're going to stay on the side of the street of the Talmud Torah of Kelm, the Kelm, you know, the the, the famous Kelm Yeshiva." So they have derecheretz, they're balei musser. So they're gonna, they're gonna, they're not gonna want, they're gonna they see us, they're gonna walk in the mud to let us pass. So I want to cross the street so as not to inconvenience the b'nei Torah. And she said to him, I want you to remember this as a lesson. So, uh, so, uh, that's, that's the type of home he grew up in. And he has a short stint in Taravadas. And then he helps found the Tel Yeshiva in Cleveland. Rebbe Meir Bloch, 
and Ramatul Katz, they called a group of Tells alumni to a meeting to decide which city to open the new Tells Yeshiva in America. Rav Ram Newhouse, who was involved in Beis Yaakov later, Rav Shlomo Davis, Rav Lazar Levi, Rav Nachum Velvel, a couple others, and the ones who scouted out Cleveland was Rabatul Katz himself and, and, and one of his assistants, and they were hosted by Mr. Yitzchak Feigenbaum, who was enthusiastic about hosting the yeshiva, where most other cities were not. And, um, excuse me, and they host him for sukkahs. It was one of the only sukkahs that were in Cleveland at the time. And he had a glass sukkah, which is also quite interesting. And then he gives his house to the yeshiva. And he later on buys himself a new house. He literally moved out of his home, this Mr. Feigenbaum, um, to, in, to have Tells take over his yeshiva. Incredible act of self-sacrifice. So then to start the academy, from Nachum Velvel and Rebelezer Levi, they would, they would go from house to house, and they were able to get 11 children to sign up, mainly from the young Israel families. And... Um, until then, the kids went to public school. And after public school, there was a yeshivas adas. That was an after-school program. And they opened the academy on 105th Street, which was the center of Jewish life at the time. And by 1944, Abdesler becomes principal. There's already 50 kids. 50 students outside of New York City in 1944. There's no Tyre Masariot. There's no day schools yet. This is a completely unheard of accomplishment. And, the, and, and this is the most incredible statistic about it all. The original staff, including Ramnachem Velvel, did not take a salary. They were in it for the ideal. They wanted to build a day school. They wanted to have Jewish education for the children of Cleveland. And Tells was very involved, and they matched every dollar that was fundraised or taken in by, by the Academy. Tells matched. They wanted it to succeed. And um, it became the flagship school of Tyre Messiah. The, the Hebrew Academy was the one ones creating the curriculum and the textbooks for all the other day school. Thousands of alumni over the years of the Hebrew Academy have made an impact worldwide, and the Destler family till today, Simi Destler, Beli Destler, and of course Ruvain Destler, um, have all uh, they're involved in the academy and in the larger uh, Cleveland Jewish community. I want to point out about Ruvain Destler because uh, his contribution is also the Jewish history. He's a collector of old Sfarim. And uh, uh, letters, uh, valuable historic documents that he has in old Judaica and Sfarim. But more importantly, for my trips, when I go to Lithuania, when I go to Belarus, and we go to uh, Kelm and Tells and other places, Valazhin and Raden, and all these places, the play, these Kvarim and these cemeteries have been refurbished of Kivrei Tzadikim and also of Kivrei Achim, places where Jews were murdered by the Nazis, such as in Kelm. They were done. Through through the um, the through uh, the help of people like Rubin Dester who cared about the history that we have in 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 these countries back there, so we're able to visit them and daven there and respect uh, the places. Interesting. At this time, the um, the uh, uh, also uh, Chabad eventually comes to Cleveland. They come in several stages. First, the Shapiro family related to Reb Label Shapiro of Miami. Later on, there's a shaykhet and a rabbi in the Tzemach Tzedek Shul, or Zalman Kazin um, of Chabad. And later on, the shliach, who was the son-in-law of, of, of Kazin, is, was Reb Leibel Ulevsky, who was a shliach of the Rebbe to come to Cleveland. He became a major shliach to the Cleveland area. And he comes in the late 1960s. And like many shlichim throughout the world, he wanted to start a Chabad school, despite the fact that the academy was there. And this is an amazing story. 
He goes in the early 1970s, 70, 71, something like that, to get a bracha from the Lubavitch Rebbe to open a Chabad school. He is not asking advice of the Rebbe, should he open or should he not open? He's opening. He's just coming to get a bracha. And what is the, the Rebbe says, in Cleveland, and the Rebbe says to him as follows, Lubavitch Rebbe says to him, you don't need to open a, a school in Cleveland. They have the academy, and it's run by Yerush Shemayim. It's run by Rebbe Velvel Dastan and by others who are Yerush Shemayim. There's no need for a new school. And he did not open a school. Until today, there's no Chabad school in Cleveland because of this story, which is the, the, uh, and the Chabad families for many years sent to the academy. It's also back to the Kelm, Musser, and traits that they're able to be the ones who create that atmosphere that that the Lubavitch Rebbe can say with confidence, don't open a Chabad school, send to the academy, it's good enough, they're Yorei Shemayim. Uh, another semi-affiliated with Tell's school that opened was the Yavne, Yavne Girls School, Yavne Seminary. And Rabbi Isaac Uzban's wife, who was a bloch, was the daughter of the, the Tell's Rebbe, Rebbe Uzban, who just passed away recently. Um, and others were prominent teachers in the school, and this is a, con- a, con- a continuation of the pre-war Yavne, which existed in Tell's, and also later on a teacher training seminary, one of the most prominent ones in the entire United States. Rabbi Mary Bloch was involved in the founding. And here we come to the great philanthropists of, uh, of Cleveland, who none of this could have happened without them. And the first one I'll mention is Irving Stone um, and the Stone family. He's a tremendous philanthropist. The Tells Stone in Israel, not far from Yerushalayim, is named after him. And it's Tells, because of his Cleveland connection. It's Stone named for, for him. The Stone Chomesh for Art Scroll is also Camp Stone. And he lived a very long life, lived into his 90s. He was a wealthy businessman, American Greetings, that company. And in the early years, he refused to compromise when it came to Shabbos. He was the, one of the, probably the largest uh, um, Shemer Shabbos company in the United States. He grew up as Zapristine, but eventually that became Stone. And he joins the business at a very young age, almost as a child, because his father got sick in the flu epidemic of 1919. So his first philanthropy was delivering chicken soup to needy people in Cleveland. Um, but he remembered how, when in that post-World War I time, the Joint Distribution Committee helped out the poor in, in Cleveland. So he said, and he appreciated that help, and he appreciated what they did, and he said he wants to dedicate his life to help others. So in, in Cleveland and then beyond also. Um, it's at the time, uh, um, Sahina himself at the time did not get a Jewish education. And that's one of the reasons he appreciated its lack. He would, the most of his extent of his Jewish education was studying Shabbos afternoon, some Chumash with his father. So he was involved with the academy from a few years after its founding until his passing for decades. And, uh, and he also led the groundbreaking efforts to team up the academy with the Federation, um, which, which I want to elaborate on in, in a couple of minutes about that that model of, of having the Federation support the Orthodox educational institutions, which is unique to Cleveland. Um, and uh, and the Stone family and the Dessler family were extremely close. Uh, the high school originally was in the Young Israel. And he dis- when it expanded, when it grew and it outgrew its quarters, he donated the new property. In order to donate the new property for the high school, he sold all his stock in United Airlines just to be able to build the high school for the academy. He supported Tells. He had a scholarship program in Israel. He supported Aisha Taira, many educational endeavors. Um, he built an assisted living for the elderly. He supported many yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael. Like I said, he also built Tellstone. He was involved with Young Israel, with NCSY. When the Iron Curtain fell, he, fell, he built a Jewish day school in Budapest. 
it was way beyond the borders of Cleveland. Um, and um, he was involved, uh, the primary supporter of the Artaira institutions of Rabbi Riskin in Israel. A whole slew of institutions and schools that Rabbi Riskin runs. So Irving Stone was the primary uh, benefactor and of that as well. Um, before I get back to the Federation, which I'm going to touch on in a minute, I want to speak a little bit more about other philanthropic families of Cleveland, such as the Spiro brothers back in the 1940s, even earlier. The Spiro family of Cleveland and New York, they weren't all in Cleveland, they're four brothers, Leon, Ben, Earl, and Herbert. And Herbert was the president of Tells and the founder of the Hebrew Academy. They started a foundation during the war years that was a tzedakah, a philanthropic foundation that was to fund all their activities of numerous causes and initiated many undertakings as projects involvement in so many organizations. There's a fantastic book out there, which I don't know if it's still in print, I have mine from many years ago, that a Cleveland native, actually, label Shanebaum, uh, put together a very, very nice compendium of uh, attempts at building Torah life and Jewish life in the United States. The main focus is the first half of the century. He does get into the 1950s and 60s a little bit as well. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, Cleveland, great Cleveland stuff in there. So this about the Spiro brothers, he has like two pages long of all the organizations that the Spiro brothers uh, were involved with and funded through their foundation. An endless list. I couldn't, I couldn't even begin to copy it. Now, in that context, it's interesting that the first major Torah Umasora convention took place in Cleveland in 1947. We're used to them taking place on the East Coast, but the Spiro brothers wanted it and the Spiro Foundation sponsored it and they wanted it in Cleveland. So it took place in Cleveland. Shaga Feivel Mendelovich and Aaron Cutler and Dr. Joe Kamenetsky and Abdullah Lifshitz and all the great Torah leaders of the time were involved in Torah Masora, which was in its early years. And Dr. Joe Kamenetsky was already the head of Torah Masora at that time. They come and, uh, and, and that, do- and the document of the entire program of that early, uh, Torah Masora, uh, convention is also in that book, uh, by Label Shamebaum. And it's a fascinating window into the challenges of the time because it has, it has all the speakers and all the topics of the speeches. Um, every speaker, people who are, Famous uh, speaker, you know, big rabbanim and big speakers at the time. You had young, uh, you had the young mashgiach of Chaim Berlin or Rabbi Victor Miller speaking about an educational topic uh, already at that convention, and and of course others as well. An amazing uh, window into that time, and hopefully we'll be able to elaborate on that when we speak about um, about uh, Torah Masora, which is also a topic we have to get to. But that convention took place uh, in Cleveland. Now, uh, Tells in the early years was clo- close, with, very close with the community, close with the Cleveland Jewish community, with the modern Orthodox Jewish community, or Matcha Gifter, was very closely affiliated with Young Israel and in Cleveland, and he spoke there very often. At some point, it kind of petered out. Um, you know, Zionism was one of the issues of contention. Um, but, uh, but the, but what is interesting in that context is that the, Orthodox Jewish community of Cleveland always enjoyed a great relationship with the Federation for over 60 years. In place where in almost every other city in the United States, the Federation wouldn't look at an Orthodox institution, wouldn't give one penny. And here you had people like Albert Ratner, who was not religious, and Irving Stone, who was modern Orthodox at best. Um, but they were very involved, and especially Stone, like I mentioned, about his... his uh, his involvement in Tells and the Hebrew Academy and all the religious institutions that he built and he was responsible for. And he initiated this, this, the, they initiated this, 
connection to the Federation. They made it from friendly, we can call it, no tension, no animosity with the Federation and the religious supported, huge support for the religious institutions from the beginning. They gave money to them, to the academy, to the other uh, Jewish uh, Orthodox uh, educational institutions, which was completely unheard of in any other uh, U.S. community at the time, and it's one of the game changers. And Mendy Klein, who was the next uh, great philanthropist of Cleveland, he built on that relationship and broadened it. And he was also involved with the Federation uh, as well. So Mendy Klein, who I mentioned, he, he transformed Cleveland. The institutions, the Cleveland, the Cleveland of today, People who move to Cleveland today, it's not just because Ohio has generous education vouchers, although that's a big incentive, but for the same price, you can move to Cincinnati. But one of the major impetus of, uh, of Cleveland's growth is Mendy Klein, what he did in the, he opened the six or seven new Kylem and he's involved in everything and institutions and the funding the, the yeshivas and rebuilding the mikvah when it needed. And, and there was literally no boundaries to his generosity. And one of the lesser known uh, um, projects that he was involved with, it's something that nearby where I am, is Kever Rachel. Um, it used to be very dangerous to go to Kever Rachel, right outside Yerushalayim, right past Talpiot, but it was dangerous. It was in Beis Lechem. And he paid for the whole place to first get cleaned up. It was a mess, the place. But also to build that massive security compound. Now when you go there, it looks like you're going into a fortress, which it is. That whole compound with the security and the building he arranged that through the Cleveland Federation, which I mentioned, and he funded it. And it keeps Kevin Rachel safe till today. It makes it accessible. There's a accessible. There's a coil there. That was all Mendy Klein. Besides for all the new projects and other things that he funded, literally uh, without uh, innumerable, and uh, not just in Cleveland but around the world, um, he helped out Tells when they when they needed help, and 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 every other institution in Cleveland. But but um, he was a very prominent uh, philanthropist worldwide. He, um, he, uh, he would often recall how the Tashar Rebbe, uh, he came from a Hasidic background, how the Tashar Rebbe had emphasized the importance of giving him sukkah, telling him to give until it hurts, which was something he did uh, throughout his life. And he never wanted uh, his uh, name anywhere. He did things quietly. He didn't want his plaque. His plaque is in Kever Rachel, but he wasn't happy that it was, even his name was, uh, was there. And as being that he comes from a Hasidic background, I think we could talk a little bit about the Hasidic presence in Cleveland. I mentioned how Chabad got there, but interestingly enough, in more recent years, Alexander Hasidus, which was for the most part wiped out during the war, but it had a resurgence, not a resurgence, a small rebuilding in B'nai Brak. So one of the branches of Shneir Zalman Danziker, who's the brother of the one of the B'nai Brak, he became the Alexander Rebbe in Cleveland of all places. That's how he ended up there. So you have Alexander, the great Polish Hasidus has a branch in Cleveland. But Cleveland is also unique in the fact that it has a Cleveland Hasidic dynasty, the Cleveland the Rebbes, one of the few American cities that has a, uh, like Pittsburgh we mentioned in that episode, and a couple of other cities. So Cleveland has that as well. It also comes from the Nadvorna dynasty of, of uh, Nadvorna in the Ukraine, later in Hungary. Um, so they had a couple of pre-war rebbes in Cleveland. Uh, one of them later moved to Ranana. He just passed away recently, literally just the last uh, few months. So Mayor Leifer, who came, uh, Leifer's the Nadvarna dynasty, he settles in Cleveland. Later on, he's in Williamsburg, but he's the Clevelander rebbe. He's the original Clevelander rebbe. He came from Nadvarna and he settles in Cleveland, so he gets that name. Um, another Nadvarna branch um, from Strozhnitz, the Strozhnitzer 
Chassidus, Rabbi Isaac Rosenbaum, who was the son of Rabbi Sacher Ber Rosenbaum. So he became uh, the Rebbe in Cleveland, and he's the one who uh, moved to Ranana in 1976, and he passed away just recently. So there are two different branches of Nadvarna Chassidus, of Strajnitz and, and, and Nadvarna, who settled in Cleveland and got the appellation Cleveland the Rebbe. They had a shtibel, Chassidus shtibel, out in the Midwest. And then, of course, like I said, the Kalva Rebbe, who was there for, um, he, at the, after he survived the camps, um, he moved to Sweden. And, and he, re, he married there, and then he moved to Cleveland in 1947. And he was in Cleveland for 16 years, a long period of time. He was a sign, sign of the Kalev dynasty, which was an important dynasty, something we'll have to also get to one time. And he opens a, a shtibel there and a cheder, um, and, uh, and, uh, and then he moved on to Rishon Lutzion, and then later Bnei Brak and later Yerushalayim. Um, Rabbi Stroll Grumer, who this, uh, this part two is dedicated to, was the Avbezdin of Cleveland for many years, for over 30 years, and all the Bezdin-related things in Cleveland for decades. He was an old uh, Tervidas student, he was the rabbi, he was a very beloved member. Um, but if we move away from rabbis in Cleveland, and uh, there were other personalities in Cleveland, there's an um, a athlete, a fellow by the name of David Berger, who was a weightlifter, and he moved to Israel. And he made it to the Israeli Olympic team. And he was part of the Israeli Olympic team in 1972, the ill-fated Israeli Olympic team in Munich. And he was one of the 11 Israeli athletes with an American background who was cruelly murdered by the Palestinian terrorists in, in Munich. And he's actually the only one, this David Berger is the only one not buried in Israel. The other 10 were buried in Israel. He was brought back to his native Cleveland, where he is in the Jewish cemetery today. So that's that's a prominent uh, Cleveland member. Of course, Daniel, going to more contemporary, Daniel Eliff of Dan's Deals fame, who's one of the most important people in the world at this point. He's a Cleveland native for five generations, a long, long time in, in Cleveland. Um, Paul Newman, the actor, is not Jewish. His mother's Catholic, but his father was Jewish. That's why he has such a Jewish name. And he's a Cleveland uh, native as well. LeBron James is not Jewish, but you have to talk about him. That's the law if you're talking about Cleveland. But speaking of the Cavs, the, both the owner and the general manager of the Cavs, Dan Gilbert and Kobe Altman, respectively, are Jewish. And, uh, he had a coach in the Cavs who was Jewish, David Blatt. So he had, I don't know if he had any players, but he had the coach. The GM and the owner uh, at different times who were who were uh, Jewish. You see, I have some Jewish uh, Jewish sports connections here. The GM of the Indians is Mike Chernoff, um, and uh, but but the Indi- or what was the Indians, whatever they are now, and his father is uh, Mark Chernoff. So therefore, the Jews in New York him because New York know him because he's a radio manager for WFAN and Mike Francesa. Most important sports connection to Cleveland is Al Rosen. He's probably the third greatest Jewish baseball player of all time after Sandy Koufax and Hank Greenberg. He was not from Cleveland, but he played his major league career uh, on the Indians. And uh, Al Rosen was, um, he, he had shortened his career both because he started it late because he was in the Navy. Um, he served in, in the Navy, actually was discharged as a lieutenant, an officer. And he, um, he, he captained a boat, an assault boat 
onto participate in the Okinawa battle, one of the bloodiest and the last major battle of World War II and in the Pacific Theater for sure, in Okinawa. And um, and he became a major league baseball player. And when he joins the the Indians, he eventually gets his hero Hank Greenberg's nickname, the Hebrew Hammer. Uh, in 1953, he missed the batting title and the triple crown on the last day of the season by one percentage point, batting 336. He was very proud as a Jew. Um, he didn't hide it. He confronted anti-Semitism from other players, from fans, and he would confront them. Um, so that's a, a, uh, a story of, of Cleveland as well. Um, the, the, um, interestingly enough, um, one of the great leaders of uh, Torah Jewry in the United States now, Rebellia Brodny, in the Mirishi of Brooklyn, has a close Cleveland connection because he's married. He, he was he was married to a a death of his wife uh, passed away, and he still visits Cleveland. So you have a a, uh, a strong uh, Cleveland connection there as well. So we have a little bit more about Cleveland in this uh, part two. There's always more to say. And uh, more to add on, um, but we'll t- do this, uh, just stop here for now. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com. Questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean. And follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.